Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Jenny Lewis, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast. Don't even get me started on how hyped I am to have Jenny Lewis as my guest in episode 91. This is an episode I've been wanting to do ever since I started this series. I'm Jenny LSQ, uh, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Jenny Lewis and I have been friends for ages now. We go back uh, something like 15 years, and I've interviewed her a number of times, but there are a lot of questions in this interview that are on topics we've never even touched on before um, because I've never really gotten to explore her earliest childhood moments of creativity, um, some of the ways that being a child actor informed her career in music, and a lot of other stuff. So I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. At the end of it, we get to a fun anecdote about a time we got trapped somewhere backstage during Arcade Fire's performance at Coachella back in the day. So hope you'll stay long enough to hear that as well. And uh, thanks to Jenny for this conversation. Her new album, Joy Y'all, is out now, and she's on tour in the coming weeks. You can get info and tickets at JennyLewis.com. Well, we've been talking a lot about spirituality, I think in the last couple of months and maybe years because of all the crazy shit, loss and death and pandemic and all of this stuff. So there is something to that embracing of joy, despite the circumstances of being a human being, getting older, losing your people. And I think it's like the Buddhist sort of orb within you can retain peace and therefore joy in the face of life's just never-ending barrage of challenges. I was thinking about on the way over here, also Jenny Lewis is my guest on the LSQ podcast. (laughs) Lewis, we're in Laurel Canyon. We're starting out strong with the meditation tip. TM, bring it on. Yeah, we're here at Jenny's place and I just want to say also, I've been excited to do this with you for a long time, so I'm glad we're doing it. But listening to some of your music on the way over here, I was thinking about this theme of lightness and darkness in your music throughout your history and throughout your catalog, and the way that you have these layers of meaning and storytelling in your songs where there's a positive message sometimes and a dark story that's kind of implied in the midst of that. And I wonder if for you, 
making music, like, is it a self-soothing thing? Is writing songs and developing your songs a way of reassuring yourself and coming up with these kind of musical mantras for yourself that you're going to sing over and over again? Yes, particularly in the case of a song like Rabbit Hole, where I do have a lot of songs about cognitive dissonance. The Giddy Up on Joy All is just like totally about that. And Rabbit Hole, just this feeling of having to have the mantra to first say it out loud and then hopefully implement it. With whatever theme, they're not all about relationships with other people or romantic relationships, although that may be the trigger or the impetus to write in the moment because it does make you feel better. It is a comfort zone and a distraction to work on music. So is that true of this new album of Joy, y'all, that this group of songs kind of blossomed in a moment of wanting to embrace that kind of a distraction or that kind of an abstraction of what was going on at the time? Yes, and in some cases to make light of it and to just have the opportunity to tell some jokes. And as we've known each other for a long time, like in these moments where shit gets truly crazy, I'll always crack the joke in the room or like wear bunny ears when my dad was passing. Every day I just showed up. It wasn't anywhere near Easter, but I just went in there with these bunny ears and somehow it just lightened the vibe in the room, which I think in some of my songs, particularly with Rilo Kylie, there's like an uber poppy musical element. And then the story is a little... Well, even like Puppy in a Truck, which is obviously the first song we got to hear from Joy Y'all and shared a while ago, it's telling the story right there of kind of this moment of looking back and saying, you know, the bunny ears lyric of what the fuck, you know, I looked back and said, what the fuck was that, right, is the is the line. But like, yeah, I was listening on the way over, I was listening to Voyager, and I was thinking about like, oh yeah, there's this theme on your albums of it is a moment, it feels like to me as your friend, you know, and as a fan of your music, like, to kind of pause on whatever era it was and just take a moment to like digest and process it in song form. And that's both funny and sad sometimes. And that's all of which is to say, I wonder when you first started to do that. When do you first remember that as a kid, something that you were confused about, you did something creative instead or to process it or distract? I think my first song was a piano song about my dad leaving and wondering where he was. And I didn't know what I was expressing at the time, but in that same way that it works for me now, it made me feel a lot better to be able to put it to some chords that like whatever dude my mom was dating at the time, they all managed to play a little bit of something. So I'd coerce them into teaching me like four chords on the piano. And then I'd write these little pieces of songs. They weren't complete yet. So yeah, probably since the jump. And how old would you have been in that situation? And where were you at that point? Already here in LA? Well, I grew up in the Valley, born in Las Vegas to lounge musician parents who had a band called Love's Way. My sister was about six so she remembers more because she was actually a part of the show. 
which would take place at the lounges in Vegas, like the Sands and the Flamingo and Circus Circus. And the band did well for a handful of years, maybe 10 years. And then they do like covers and stuff, songs of the day or? Yeah. Yeah. Covers and no originals. But the band was my dad on harmonica, a chord harmonica, which is an instrument that's like a foot and a half long. Whoa. I don't think I've ever seen one of those. I, I might have that. a picture of my dad okay. playing one. And that harmonica that's up on my mantle here, that is a bass harmonica, which is famous from a Beach Boys song. And it's like a very, it's really hard to get a sound out of that thing. So when my dad passed, that's the harmonica I got. And my uh, half-brother made that glass box. Although I wanted the foot-long chord harmonica, but I think my sister got that one. It's beautiful, though. I've never seen a harmonica that big. Well, and it's got my dad's DNA on it. You can just, like, see all of the wear on the harmonica. So, like, Timothy Leary's head, which I think is still cryogenically frozen somewhere, which is pretty amazing. I feel like we could reconstruct Eddie Gordon (laughs) to rip a fucking sick solo. I mean, this dude was an actual... We throw the word genius around, but he was a savant. He could never drove a car... Drove a car once into the apartment building into like someone's bathroom where someone was like taking a shit. <laughs> That's the story. Like he backed it up. He was having an affair with someone called Christmas, which is maybe why I love Christmas so much. Christmas May was her name. And then my mom was having an affair with some dude who worked at an Italian restaurant. I don't know. It's Las Vegas in the <laughs> 70s. A lot of coke, a lot of cash, all cash. Mobsters just like pay you. Very exciting times. Wow. A lot of weed. My mom smoked a lot of weed. You said they played covers, but did either of them write music separately from that at all? No. No. And that has been the defining factor with my family. We're all music showbiz people. My grandparents and great-grandparents as well. My grandparents were on vaudeville. My grandfather had an act with Burt Lahr who got the gig as the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz and, like, got famous. And my grandfather was scorned and ended up working for the mob and then did, like, 10 years at Sing Sing. Is this Eddie's Eddie's dad? This is Eddie's dad, who I never met. But he was a boxer, a Golden Gloves boxer. Here in L.A.? Uh, No, No. this is, like, Philly, like, South Philly. Right. Okay, so going back to Baby Jenny at a Piano... That was here in L.A. already by then. Yes. So the band broke up. We drove out to L.A. My uncle was driving the truck with all of our stuff in it. And he was drinking and driving and he crashed the truck on the way to L.A. in Bakersfield and died. My mom's like 27-year-old brother at the time. So it wasn't a good omen. (laughs) For love's way. It was not a good omen for love's way. way. Yeah. So... (laughs) We ended up in L.A. just so broke. My mom's mom was so broke. And my mom grew up on welfare and did a bunch of jobs, but was always singing, you know, at home. And we ended up in L.A. where my mom was going to Valley College and I was enrolled in the preschool there. And I was scouted by an agent at the preschool. And Within the walls of the preschool somehow, that's what happens when you come to L.A. Right? Yeah, somehow that's the story. Again, yeah. I don't know if it's I true. I believe it. I believe it. 
Was that before you had found that writing a song was... Yeah. Yeah. This was like, okay, okay, kid, it's showbiz, you're three, and now you're just gonna... Your life is like going auditions, working, and that was just my life. And then, the you know, all this stuff was happening in the home with my mom and her various issues, drugs and alcohol, and just complete insanity. So the music came out of like what was happening in the house. That was my outlet for that because as an actor, I was responsible for the family and I made all the money. Did the acting feel like a similar energy at that point at all to music? Because it's a creative thing as well. You know, did that feel like it stoked some part of you? I think it was the craft that I learned very quickly and was very good at taking direction and being a really good kid on the set. So I feel like I learned all of these skills, how to remember lines that then helped me learn how to remember all of my songs, you know, the techniques to do that. And then the technique in method acting, which when you're a kid, you don't know that's what it's called. But before a scene where you're supposed to cry, the director might come up to you and say, your dog is dead. Action. (laughs) Your dog is dead. So you learn how to harness that emotion, which is a big part, I think, of being an artist and a performer. So a lot of times now I'm accessing that place, you know, where like, depending on how I want to feel in the set on any given night, I can like go back. And it's like a muscle that I learned from a very young age. You want to feel sad? I know exactly how to get there. But you're saying that there's a period of time when you're a little kid where they actually just trick you into thinking your dog has died. You don't even know what's happening. Yes. You You go do a scene internally thinking, oh no, my dog is dead. And then at the end, they're like, just kidding. Yeah. Wow. So trippy, trippy, but also it makes sense that even at that age, you would want to do a kind of creativity that was completely within your control. A reaction to that might be that happens a couple of times and you're like, okay, I get what you're going for there, even as a kid, but also no, if I want to make myself cry, I'll make myself cry on my own or something. You know, I'll, I'll access my emotions in a way that feels more autonomous, you know, is sitting by yourself at a piano and it's completely your story to tell, not being told, react, act this way now. Yeah, and I realized from a young age that that I had something to say. And I read a lot of scripts growing up and a lot of them suck. And a lot of things that I was in, they were supposed to be great things and they didn't turn out great. Some of them have become cult appreciated with time. But when True Beverly Hills came out, that was a giant flop. It was just like, fail, everyone failed quit your jobs. You know, it was like, even as a kid, that's a reset. You were kind of aware of the reception that the adults were reacting to for something you were in, or did it feel like there were stakes that something was on the line when a film like that came out? Yeah. You could just feel it if it flowed and things that got canceled. I was on a lot of shows that did, you know, four or five or six episodes and like a John Sayles show that he wrote and with like the most amazing Richard Edson, Iggy Pop was on an episode, Jamie Shea, it was Elizabeth Pena. Like the cast was like a dream 90s indie film from that time. But that show only made it five episodes for whatever reason. It like didn't catch the zeitgeist because there's like so much to something 
catching, you know, yeah. being good objectively. Elizabeth Pena was so good. She's amazing on the show, and it's about a gambler, and I'm his sort of sassy daughter. What's it called? Shannon Steele, like a PI gambler. Great. John Sales. So a lot of things like that, which were like, this is going to be a big break, kid. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole time so you had started, you started writing songs. How quickly after it, kind of that first one you remember, you're like, oh, I do this all the time now. This is, you, were you obsessed with it? Well, I had started listening to rap music when I was 10. Yeah. How did you start hearing that? And well, I've told the story before, but it's really one of, bring it, one of the coolest ones. <laughs> so I was friends with Corey Haim at the time. We would go to these kid parties called Alfie's Soda Pop Club, which were these like teen get-togethers for kids who were actors. And they would have, you know, like New York Seltzer. And it was like a get-together. And it was very like the popular kids were the popular kids. The nerdy kids were the nerdy kids. It was like freaks and geeks, but like TV, young celeb style, like teen beat and tiger beat. So... Meet up with Corey Haim at one of these parties, and he's the best, and we become fast friends. I'm 10, he's 15, but I'm an advanced 10-year-old. Not like- I believe that. Not like makeout style, because I was a prude, <laughs> but I was just like, could kind of shoot the shit with anyone. So he gave me a cassette, and half of it was Run DMC, and half of it was the Beastie Boys. Great combo. Yeah, like 1989. And that was it. I was like, oh, yeah, this is my music. This is my music. This speaks to me, and I want to write raps. So I just started writing raps that I would pretend were freestyle sometimes. <laughs> there was like, then I started hanging out with kids that were, you know, when I was 15, 16, I met Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas. We actually cut a song together back then that I what? wish I had a copy of. It's so good. And a bunch of just like L.A. rappers. And then I got really into underground L.A. and West Coast rap, like hieroglyphics and freestyle fellowship. There was this kind of indie rap scene. Mm -hmm. And I would go to these shows and I was just writing verses. And those songs are really dark. A lot of the and then I got into like West Coast gangster rap. What did it sound like or what was your flow like or what who were you emulating the most? I think I was emulating like freestyle fellowship, like art rap, like dark tales, you know, of like psychedelic, you know, and I was also starting to do drugs at that point. So I was smoking weed every day from the time that I was like 14, like major bong rips and then, you know, acid. And then I simultaneously became a raver and started doing a lot of well, we used to call it ecstasy back then. <laughs> so my poetry was getting pretty fucking out. And then I went to this bar in LA called The Gaslight, which was like this hip kind of like 90s. And they would have like guest DJs. And Bismarcky was the guest rapper at this night. And I was like 17 or, yeah, I was probably 17. And there was like a freestyle sesh. And I got up on the mic and did my little psychedelic murder ballad freestyle. And Bismarck, he was there and he did his shit and it was so fucking dope. Wow. And then I kind of saw myself in that scenario and I was like, I had just been gifted an acoustic guitar for Hanukkah. 
And I thought, "Mm, I need to find a way to like be able to like speak the poetry with some sort of musical accompaniment. So I started putting the raps to acoustic guitar and then piano. Did you ever record the phase when it was just the poems, just the raps? So yeah, somewhere at some weird dude's house. And the the moment of stepping up on stage in that place, obviously it's intimidating because there's Bismarck. He is there, you know, he's a big deal already at that point. But that was your first public music performance? Aside from the seventh grade talent show where I sang Killing Me Softly with his song, pre-Fugees, which also felt very hip hop to me in that moment. And my mom listened to a lot of Roberta Flack and female singer songwriters who played piano and sang. So for me early on, it was very important to have something to accompany, you know. In that period of time, the songs you were writing, you rapped them. You weren't singing them to yourself. You weren't putting like that kind of a melody to it. No, that was pre kind of like melodic hook rap music. You know what I mean? Like there's some, but like that wasn't really happening in that same way. Well, I guess like the samples were like some, like Big Daddy Kane, Smooth Operator. So then once you had the guitar, yeah, what made you start to sing? Because you're such a gifted singer. Were you sort of like, oh, wow, turns out I can carry a tune? Well, I had always been, I sang in TV shows. I'm like, I had to learn, you know, whatever show it was. They're like, the teenage daughter is in a production of blah, blah, blah. So you'd have to like learn matchmaker, matchmaker. And then it's like a fake play scenario. <laughs> where they're- Find me a find, <laughs> catch me a catch. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Which I have a lot of memories that I think are real, but they're actually, they just happened on a set. (laughs) Remember that time I hit the home run, but (laughs) never happened. And was there any sense in your mind during that earliest phase of like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a music artist. Or was it just purely like a fun, like good energy you were pursuing? No, it never occurred to me that that, that's just something I did. It was my private stuff, aside from my one freestyle experience with Bismarcky, who cycled back around and I played a wedding in the Hamptons in 2017 with Bismarcky. I played two Rilo Kiley songs and then he played a couple songs. So Bismarcky has been a very important part of my, he's like a part of my simulation. Damn, R.I.P. Biz. R.I.P. Biz. So when I moved out of my mom's house, which was my house, I got a four track from a friend and I started experimenting with lo-fi recording and vocal stacking and all this stuff that I still use in my demos, which I demo every single one of my songs on GarageBand. So first it was four track, but... I was introduced to Blake and we met up and he came over and that was the first time I'd ever had anyone like lay down a guitar thing that then I wrote over. That happened very early. So then we had these two batches of songs, these like weird ones that I made on my own that were really weird and like my weird dark raps, but somehow folk versions of that. And then Blake's stuff, which was actually played well and like different chord changes that I'd be using, and then our kind of vibe that we wrote together, which was like mostly joke songs. Was Blake bringing some of the like more indie rock, like that, like early indie rock? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. That happened when 
I discovered Bright Eyes. I was always the one in the record store. So it was like hip hop. And then that sort of scene wasn't exciting anymore once it started kind of blowing up. So then I discovered Modest Mouse and Death Cab. And Bright Eyes, this dude I was friends with, made me a mixtape that had Bright Eyes on it. This is like Fevers and Mirrors era. And I was immediately obsessed. I was like, who is this person speaking directly to me? And then I saw a picture of Connor. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it's like completely smitten. And also seemed like weird rap music to acoustic guitar, like weird, beautiful poetry, but like very wordy. I remember listening to it in my car and I was like, wow, this, I feel a kinship towards this person. Well, also, I guess just like what the thing that ended up evolving into the big umbrella term of emo, what people say now, you know, it really wasn't a thing yet. Then the idea of having, of really like letting loose true emotions with acoustic guitar music in that way. You know, obviously there's like the Bob Dylan model, but this thing of like true emotional vulnerability plus like some punk rock thing plus acoustic guitar, you know, was just, there weren't really models for that. Well, there was like Captain Jazz right. and there's like an earlier movement. The like math uh, Yeah, but that didn't have the same kind of poetry. Like I feel like Connor brought through his beautiful words and also through Mogus's multi-instrumentation chip yeah. That's a word yeah. like Micah play pedal steel and orchestra belt. Like it was very advanced musically. And there were people playing bassoon and strings, Nate Walcott. Like, so the music. Right. The orchestration and shit like that. Too. Really took that to a different level. Whereas I love like the promise ring oh, and yeah. cabin jazz, like that stuff I was really into, but I think I was more into Isaac Brock. Well, there's also that thing of like that Connor does that Isaac does. That's the like yelling. It's the like you're it's, it's, just, it's the like you're letting your voice go off somewhere, just going off in general that I feel like was not as much a thing. But it's like the acoustic music was going to be quieter. It was going to be it wasn't going to get as hectic energetically or emotionally as that early kind of indie what they call emo now, you know, what we never would have thought of. I certainly didn't think of Bright Eyes as being emo when I first heard it. We joke of, about it. Yeah, I thought of so emo. You were like, you know, Rights of Spring, that's emo. Or you'd yeah. be like, oh, Sunny Day Real Estate may be cool. Yeah, sure. And like, yeah, okay, Promise Ring, definitely. But that felt like Death Cab and Bright Eyes and so much of what younger people now consider emo for them, like the larger term. I get it. I get it how that is the thing. It's like. But you are kind of just in your 20s, pretty emo anyway. It should just be all music under 30. You're just emo as fuck. Like, it's just some of the things I was upset about back then. You're like, oh my goodness. It's not as much of the real world shit that you later experience. Right. The true agony of like, you know, whatever. Real life trauma, being sick, not feeling well. And also, like, when did it start to feel like a thing that was, you were doing it like it's your job? Because one of the things I admire about you is that you take your work you know, as a professional artist, seriously, you do things well and carefully and thoughtfully. You're a pro, like in the best possible way. And at what point did you start to think like, look, I care about this. I want to really do this and put all my eggs kind of in this basket and start dwindling down some of the acting stuff and that kind of thing. Well, so Blake and I started four tracking together. And then I got Foxfire. 
which was my last big acting gig, which is like this based on a book by George Carol Oates, where it's about these girls in Portland, Oregon, and they have a kind of gang and there's like a romantic thing between all of them and they overcome adversity and it's like the classic tale. So I went up to Portland to do this movie and Blake came up to visit me and we started doing little concerts for the crew and the cast in the hotel room because we had all these songs that we were writing, these funny ones. And then I started kind of taking it more serious. So we would have these little concerts for like the crew, you know, the makeup team and some of the grips would come and the cinematographer and they would just sit and we'd do like an hour set of like our funny, weird songs. So I think for both of us, we were like, wow, this is really cool. We're not just like the nerd part on the show, <laughs> which my part on that was like, you know, the awkward one, <laughs> the friend of the friend. <laughs> so that was kind of like, we're like, wow, this is, people like this. This is cool. And then we started jamming with Rilo Kiley's first drummer, Dave Rock, nominative determinism. Oh my God. Perfect. And Pierre. And then we just kind of like, through our indie rock fandom, started like giving our CD out. Like when Jason Bozell joined our band, his hazing, Blake made him give a CDR of Takeoffs and Landings, the first Rilo Kylie record, to someone in Granddaddy. Like we went to the Granddaddy show and he's like, if you're going to be on the band, you're going to go give, give him a CDR right now. And Jason was like, no, horrified. <laughs> Don't make me do that. He did. Oh my God, the passing of the CDR. Hey, check this out. So then that pro when that project wrapped up, you had the time then to start to do music more full time? Well, there was an incident on that show. There's a scene in the book where the girls give each other flame tattoos on their breasts and they're topless. And so I signed up saying yes to the nudity. And then on the day of, I just totally made a decision to not take my shirt off, which was completely controversial. It was a big deal. And I didn't do it. I wore a sports bra. And somehow I created, I was like, my character, she would wear a sports bra. She's uncomfortable in her body. But like. True though, right? True, not the way it is in the book. And ultimately I signed up for that. So it was unprofessional of me. But that was before I think the internet really existed in the way that it does now. So I'm so grateful I didn't do that. I was just like, you know what? Fuck this bullshit. Did you like get in trouble or was there? Oh yeah. I almost got fired. Damn. So that must've been just also kind of what you're like, fuck this shit in general at that point ish. Well, I felt so guilty for not doing it, but I just didn't want to do that. And that had happened to me when I was 11. I did this movie with Raul Julia and Beverly D'Angelo called Trading Hearts. And I was a little girl, but there's a scene where I had to go out on the beach just in my underpants and Raul Julia is in the scene and I'm like, you know, turning my back to him and I'm like super embarrassed. And that is the way it was written again, day up. I was like, I don't want to take off my shirt in front of all these people. This is so embarrassing. So that one they convinced me to do, but I just didn't like the way that felt. I didn't understand why it felt weird because everyone was telling me to do it. You're just like, wow, it really, it sounds like kind of a scary world for a kid to be in. 
Yes. And, and the flip side, though, an amazing training ground for being around large group of people who are collaborating on a creative project and meeting all sorts of artists under the guise of what has to happen on a movie set, which is just so many people contributing. And also attitude in that world, like just observing how one crotchety person can kind of like throw the whole vibe off. So I learned a lot about being a band leader in navigating behaviors on the road, which it just always comes up and trying to be in control of my reactions to these situations. And I think I learned a lot of that on movie sets. But I guess, you know, kind of zooming out on Rilo Kylie as a phase of your career, how do you think you changed the most as a song maker, as an artist, kind of through that process, the way you went in and the way you came out on the other side of it? Like, what do you think was the biggest influence it had on the artist that you are now? Well, it was such an important time for all of us in the band and so special. And again, in navigating personalities on the road, you know, I learned a lot about how I don't want to be. So it got pretty messy out there, but the music was flowing so well. And we just had this incredible chemistry and vibe. And I feel like I had so much to say, just so much was coming out. It was so wordy. And when we started the band, I was very serious about my role in the band, which was just writing constantly. So a lot of nights where the dudes were out, I was in the van or back in the, where we were staying, you know, I was working on stuff constantly. So again, yeah, it was a great time to be able to do that. And I learned everything. I had to play all the instruments and sing a 90 minute set and not have any days off for 30 days. Once it was like your job and you're sort of like making a record and then you're going to get to make another record. And is that when kind of what became your songwriting style, I guess, you know, started to really take root? Because you're talking about this phase before that, where it's the poems and the freestyles and the rapping and kind of figuring out the acoustic guitar thing and some of the indie rock influences. Where in there do you think you really started to find like where you're like, okay, this is, this is what a Jenny Lewis song sounds like. I'm in the flow space now. Well, I'd always demoed on my four track. So even on execution of all things, the first song on that record, the good that won't come out, that's just my pure four track voice, which was like years before when Blake came over for the first time, I had all this stuff. So that was really my voice. And then we took that into Presto, the studio in Nebraska, and then Mike turned it into this beautiful, hi-fi, wonderful sounding song. It sort of explodes that song into hi-fi-ness. So I think I was finding my voice even within the band. And there were always songs that I was writing within the band throughout the band's history. So I kind of understood what I could do. I just needed to write more of those because I was also writing with Blake where he would bring a piece of music and then I would just really hunker down on the lyrics and the melody. So I think it was the rabbit for coat batch of songs. I kind of made a conscious decision to 
start siphoning some of my songs off because Blake had gone ahead and made his first solo record, which is entitled Me First. (laughs) Amazing. So he wanted to do his own thing, was very vocal about that. So I was very hurt and like, what? you? I thought we were doing this band thing. This is like our whole life. This is like our former relationship. We broke up. So then he's like working on this solo thing while we're on the road with Rilo Kylie. And I was kind of like, all right, then I guess I'll have a little batch of songs that are mine. So I got those songs together and then Mogus recorded them. And that was the first time I had been in the studio hearing just my own songs 100% and exactly how I wanted them to sound instrumentation wise, like very simple singer songwriter vibes. So that was pretty magic to hear that off the tape. I was like, whoa. Yeah. It felt like you were aware of it as like a schism in time of like just something new. There's a new branch now. Well, and it just felt like me. Whereas the other thing feels like me and Blake and Jason and Duke. Yeah. So then once I heard the music, then I just, my mind with the way it could look and what you could do visually without having to run it by, you know, three other people that may not like your ideas or have some other idea of their own, which some are good, some are, I mean, when we were naming Rilo Kylie, my contribution for the band name was Chunk from Goonies. Terrible idea. (laughs) Meaning not just Chunk, but Chunk from Goonies. Chunk from Goonies. Oh, wow. My favorite character from Goonies. What what a cutie. So cute. He's so cute. So yeah, that was, that was crazy. I didn't expect that to happen, but Blake was doing this me first thing, which was going well. And so it felt like I was given a pass. I mean, were you optimistic about, did you feel strong about it at the time or? Well, I felt it was the paradox of like the guilt of leaving or doing something on my own and being independent, which I had felt when I left my mom's, our house mm-hmm. where she was my manager and I left. And then I left my acting career behind and everyone was like, you shouldn't do that. What is this music? And then the band and then, you know, I felt like I had betrayed the band, but I knew that I had to do it. And then it happened and it was, it exceeded my expectations as far as the way it was received. I couldn't believe it. Did you start to see yourself differently? Yes. Just as a human being, but yeah, as a creative person, as a, an artist overall, just all the art, all of it. That's, you know, I started taking more pictures and when I got my phone, making little movies on my phone and then like designing the stage and the costumes. And with the twins, it was just so easy to like get something amazing looking. I mean, it was just like insane how- Red Rob. Oh yeah. Just like the symmetry and the beauty and then having Autumn DeWild, which was the first time I had collaborated with her. And then she came on and did the next Rilo Kylie album cover as well. We've known each other a long time and I've watched you work. You know who you are as an artist. You know what you want things to look like. Were you as confident as that 
in that kind of stuff early on? Or has that been kind of a path, a journey as well to get to knowing to trust your instincts about what a Jenny Lewis song sounds like and what a Jenny Lewis album looks like and what's right for you and what's not? Yes. And I'm still finding my voice and I'm still, although I'm in charge, I still am working with collaborators and learning as well, which is also a great part of being a solo artist is that you can still work with people, but it can be finite where it's not like a life commitment where you're in a band. You're like, Oh my God, it's like I'm married to these guys. You know, you feel like you have to run everything by them. Like it's just not a very independent you know, it's just like a very different mindset. It's been so freeing, just artistically harder in a lot of ways, because you have to do everything. It's just a lot more work. And then if it's not that rad, it's like, well, yeah, you can't be like, he did it. <laughs> do you have other kind of creative challenges or like, do you see there being a future chapter where you've pursued another creative path? than making music as a possibility. Yeah. And I think we, the kind of DIY artists, we already do all this stuff that, you know, because if you can't, you don't have access to a lot of money to hire these like amazing people, you kind of already are a t-shirt designer, a lighting designer, a costume designer, a graphic arts person, an expert on fonts. <laughs> Which is the hardest part of laying out every record. It's just when we get to the font, I have like font nightmares. I'm sure. It's a big choice. Randomly amusing to me is that whenever I load Stevie Nicks' website, which I do frequently for my job to check on her tour dates, and it's this awesome, very on-brand Stevie kind of swirly, you know, beautiful, classy font. But for a minute, when the page first loads, it's Comic Sans, like it's in Comic Sans while it's remembering what it's supposed to do. And that moment brings me joy every time. <laughs> Chef's kiss. I picture Stevie Nicks, the great Stevie Nicks, looking at it, loading and being like, ah, for a minute, just being like sending about it. Somebody email those pop people. What is that? And it's like, no, just let it load, Stevie. Just let it load. Ah, oh, font. <laughs> <laughs> but this is how obsessive I am about, you know, one word in a lyric in a song. Like Psychos, that song took me two years to finish. That's a long one. That's like writing it, revising it, demoing it, redemoing it. Mostly the lyrics changing in all of that time. Yes, the melody was pretty solid. Some of the chords changed a little bit under it too, but just the lyrics, like getting the story, like getting out of the like finger pointing and like allowing it to be a little more reflective, you know? Right. Well, turning the finger onto thine self and just be like, I not let's point the finger of accusation at me. I'm the psycho, maybe. Because it's easy to write a diss song, which feels so cheap. I've written so many of those and it's just like, oh, what are you so bitter about? So wait, are there already kind of the same notes file that had the psycho's lyrics in it for two years? Is there already kind of like, when's the last time you started on a song? Well, I'm always, there's always the fade into crossfade right. from the old. It's nice to get a record out because yes. then they're done, done. Right. You can't like tweak them anymore. But then there's, yeah, there's like a couple ones that have been spinning for a year or two now. And like a Christmas song about, well, it's Dickensian, of course, classic Christmas 
uh, about Noel Gallagher and the death of rock and roll. And Noel is the ghost of Christmas, past, present, and future. Of course. So that's my Christmas song that I'm working on. Set in Rock and Roll Square, right? Is that my remembering correct? Set in Rock and Roll Square, <laughs> which is 7th and B, where we both have frequented many a night. So it opens at the cabin down below, which was a cabin down below on 7th and B that no longer exists. But a lot of debaucherous things happened down there. Legendary New York rock and roll speakeasy. Yes. So it, it begins at the cabin down below. And then we follow a bass player in a pop band who encounters Noel Gallagher, who then takes him through the perils of rock and roll excess, past, present, and future. Damn. Sounds pretty well-developed, Lewis, I got to say. Well, I've got the outline. And it's almost I, Christmas. It's almost, I just have to tell the details, you know, of, you know, we're talking about excess. We're talking about a rock and roll jerk who's indulged in all the, you know, who's been in the famous band, is, uh, has done way too many drugs. But in that moment where Noel Gallagher takes him back to where his mom gave him his first guitar or whatever, you know, you need like the purity and then you need the debauchery. And then you need the future, which is like rock and roll death. I feel like this needs to be a short film. <laughs> and it's called I Said Maybe. I said maybe. I said maybe. Oh. You're going to be the one that's saying <laughs> So great to talk with you for the LSQ podcast. Oh, my pleasure to see you. And I'm just so happy to know you. And... Our friendship has really blossomed over the years and we've had some amazing moments. Like when we, I think our first big bonding moment was at Coachella when Arcade Fire had those giant inflatable balls and we got trapped between two fences with like a thousand balls. And then we were instructed to like, as fast as we could, like push them out into the crowd. So good. We were just waiting for the signal to go. We were disappointed because we couldn't get out into the audience to see Arcade Fire because we missed our opportunity. And then they're like, actually, you want to help with this thing? And next thing we knew, we were in this pit just waiting. They're like, we're going to tell you when to push. And we're like, is it now? Is it now? And then like hamsters or something, we just, such pure joy, y'all. Pure joy. That was so fantastic. Deep, deep gratitude to Lewis for, for that conversation. And again, JennyLewis.com to get tickets for her upcoming shows. Her amazing new album, Joy Y'all, is out now. Episode 92 is with Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes, another one I'm really excited for out in a couple of weeks, right around when he puts out his new solo album, Melodies on Hiatus. And you can find other episodes of the LSQ podcast on major platforms and at JennyLSQ.com. And I'm at JennyLSQ on Twitter and Instagram. Talk to you next time.